On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about phase two of the opening here in Hamilton. Donna Skelly from the provincial government MPP for Flamborough Glenbrook will be talking about that. What does this mean and what are the concerns? And is the provincial government going to help bail out the city of Hamilton? We're also going to talk about the opening of restaurants in the city. There's a new plan where streets, at least one to start with, and up to 30 coming down the road, pardon the pun, are going to be closed so that restaurants can open big patios to get people back. Jason Farr will join us to talk about that. And we are hearing, there's a Variety magazine story about this, the number of people who say not interested at all in going to the movie theaters anymore. Just bring the first run movies into my house. I want to watch it there. Huge numbers. Is this the end of the movie theater as we know it? We will discuss that too. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The provincial government has given the green light for Hamilton to go ahead with phase two of the opening. You've heard lots about it over the last couple of days, barbershops and restaurants. And, and thankfully, thankfully, I noticed on the list of things that can be opened, piercing establishments because... Whew, what have we done without piercings? Anyway, uh, some some semblance of normal is going to be coming back to our world uh, with a bit of a twist. Let me now bring in the aforementioned, not Dana Scully from X-Files, Donna Skelly from the provincial government, MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook. How are you today? I'm great. It's so funny you have made that connection. Very few people have, and I always thought it was quite interesting, Dana Scully. Yeah. You know, if we could have just... Job if I ever leave politics, and you know, you never know, right? Well, once upon a time when you were doing CHCH and doing the 530 show, if instead of Mark Hebsher, he could have been Mox Fulder, it would have been perfect. <laughs> Very true. Very there good. Might have been a, well, there might have been some sort of copyright violation or something we would have had to deal with. I'm not sure, but anyway... Um, are you uh, are you very confident or are you a little apprehensive about what's about to happen with the second phase opening of everything? In Hamilton, I'm confident. I'm in Toronto right now, and uh, you would never know we were in the middle of a COVID-9 pandemic because there are an awful lot of people out, I can tell you that. And if you may, may have heard, um, there has been an outbreak at uh, one of the Home Depots in Richmond Hill. So we're not out of the woods. That is a, a given, and the one thing I'm a little disappointed in is the lack of um, people wearing masks. You know, I think if we, we've, we've done a pretty good job, we did have a little bit of a problem, a hiccup with young people in the Hamilton-Halton area who uh, were not social distancing and were not playing by the rules, and we saw outbreaks, and that was one of the reasons why we weren't in stage two uh, the list of cities that could open in stage two last week. But our numbers are down. I think Hamiltonians are pretty good. And I'll be, I have to tell you, Scott, I have such confidence with the city. Their team that is working on reopening and has been managing the COVID-19 crisis in Hamilton have done a remarkable job. They really have. Well, and and I agree with you, and I I'm I hope it continues because you start to realize. I mean, if we suddenly get a big second wave, uh, all the work and all the pain and all the self quarantining and all the economic hardship and everything else is for naught, and we're right back to where we started. And we can't, we just can't afford uh, another outbreak. We just really can't. I mean. I, my heart breaks for so many of these business owners who have put their 
blood, sweat, and tears into their businesses only to see them shuttered for months. And there, you know, many will not reopen. The restaurant industry has been hardest hit. Uh, we have phenomenal restaurants, and they were critical. Their industry and the um, the chains, but more importantly, the people who came up with fabulous ideas and super, you know, menus, really turned, I think, had a, played a key role in the city of Hamilton's revitalization. And if we lose them, our city is going to be hurt probably even more so than many other cities because of the role that they, they have played and hopefully will continue to play. Jason Cassis, who is... Um, one, one of the owners of the Friends and a number of other restaurants in the city of Hamilton was on a, a Zoom conference call with um, one of our ministers, Minister Prab Sarkaria, uh, Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Production. And at that point, this was weeks ago, he suggested that it, the cities should think about closing entire streets to allow for restaurants to increase the capacity just so that they can have some some um, profit margin if they, if and when they do reopen. And Minister Sarkaria said, you know, a lot of other cities tried to, to claim that they were the first, but it was really our city that, that thought about it. And look at, lo and behold, they've put, you know, they've already started thinking about what they can do. The, the counselors, this team, and restaurant owners are identifying areas of the city where they can take over sidewalks and lanes and roads, maybe even entire roads, uh, so that we can have restaurants reopen. I, I think it's they've, they've been very, very forward-thinking, responsible. Now, we all have to just do our part, social distance and wear masks, and hopefully we'll get through this. Yeah, and in, in fact, it's funny you bring that up because after we're done with you, that's still a ways to go, but we're going to be talking with Councillor Jason Farr about that very thing, about the restaurants reopening and the idea of closing streets. They want to do it all over the city now. Um, we will see. Uh, Donna, we're going to take a very quick break here. And, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Sorry, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, Jason, again, was uh, Councillor Farr, was a leader in saying, let's do this. And, uh, you know, when especially at the city, but... Here at the province as well, bureaucrats can stand in the way of getting anything done. They've moved pretty quick. And I wouldn't be surprised if we were one of the first cities in the province to adopt what our city has suggested. And I will give Jason all the credit, along with some of these incredible entrepreneurs, to get this to, to happen. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Done with Flamborough Glenbrook MPP Donna Skelly about the phase two opening of Hamilton and what happens and what this means and what it means as far as from the provincial government and Donna I mean getting things going um it, it, I don't know that it's ever been more important we heard this weekend a report that you know at one time we were talking about a 20 million dollar deficit in the city and then it became a 60 million dollar deficit and on the weekend we heard we could be facing a 122 million dollar deficit uh, you were on council. You're not there now, but you were on council. Pretend you're back there for a second. Is that the kind of number that gives you a nightmare when you're trying to contemplate how to get rid of it? Absolutely, especially when you are not by law allowed to have a deficit. 
So they can't overspend. So what do you do? There will have to be bail tightening. I mean, we just have to. At one point, someone, some generation is going to have to pay for all of this. Yet, we also have to recognize that we can't stop spending. We can't stop helping our small business community and, more importantly, our long-term care facilities. We have to take care of our most vulnerable, our seniors, and that's going to be an incredible amount of money. The federal government is going to have to come up with more money for health care. But, um, you know, we can't, we can't, we cannot govern the way we have been governing. The big changes will come. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the LRT if, if the city truly has an appetite going into uh, post-COVID-19 for LRT. Ridership numbers on all forms of transit are down, and they were never there to begin with for LRT. So it'll be interesting to see if, if um, there is as much support for that particular transit project because it's so, so incredibly expensive. Let me but jump in for I a second, think- Donna. So if I can, let me just jump in for a sec, because I want to go on this for a second. Uh, yesterday, I was chatting with Councillor Brad Clark on the show here. And if people were listening, they would have heard that. You can find it at the podcast if you want to at 900chml.com. Here is what he had to say when I suggested that it seems right now that both the provincial and the federal governments are looking at each other to bail us out. And neither seems all that inclined to do it. Here's what he said yesterday. And that's my apprehension. You hit it right on the head. It it. My, my, I guess, inclination is that um, the feds basically rolled out the money barrel through this COVID crisis and gave money to businesses, gave money to individuals who lost their job, beefed up the EI, did all of the right things, um, rental programs, you name it. Then the province did the exact same thing. And now as we're getting closer and closer to the time when they have to make a decision in terms of how they help the municipalities, which incidentally, Scott, they have been saying all along, we will make you whole. Don't worry, we'll be there for you. They're not there for us. So Donna, the question that a lot of people are wondering is with this, I mean, yeah, we can make cuts here in Hamilton and we can find ways perhaps to save a few million here and there, but is is the province going to bail out the cities, including Hamilton? I think you'll see some support. I don't know if it'll be full support. Um, the, the federal government will have to step in. We, we can't continue to um, try. I mean, our priority right now is health care, keeping people safe and addressing the crisis in long-term care facilities. That is the priority. Then, looking at what happens with municipalities will be, I'm sure it's uh, being discussed as we speak uh, by our cabinet colleagues, but having said that, we can't continue to spend the money, and and I don't think municipalities really believe that they can continue to operate the way they did before. They're going to have to look at where they can cut costs, but they're not going to find, in Hamilton's case, you can't find $160 million in savings. It's just not possible. They will need help from both the the province and the feds. And I know you're not the finance minister, so it's a little unfair to put this on you to ask you this question, but it seems illogical to think that when this is all done and things start to at least get straightened out a bit, that we are not going to be facing new taxes from the province and from the federal government. Is that a fair statement, do you think? We're going to have to find out how to recover this money at one point. As I said, it's not free money. And, and 
you, you know, you have to re- remember that somebody is going to be paying for it. How that is going to come about, I'm sure there will be, well, there will be some tax implications, but moving out of COVID, we want to give businesses tax breaks. So again, it's it's a delay in, in uh, filling the coffers and, and making us whole. Now remember, there are over 400 municipalities in Ontario. Yeah. You're talking about 160 million deficit in the city of Hamilton alone. I don't know what every other municipality is facing, but we know it will be in the millions and millions and millions of dollars if they're like Hamilton. We just can't afford that as a province either to make them whole. So we're all we're all in this together, and we're going to have to come up with a solution. There is no playbook, but we cannot expect to operate to govern the way we have been once we do uh, move out of and move beyond COVID nineteen. It is uh, it is a conundrum. There is absolutely no question, and and I think conundrum almost is a funny word. People almost chuckle when they hear that. It's not a funny word. It's a uh, it is a real problem. Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glenbrook. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking some time today. Anytime, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You heard me chatting with MPP Donna Skelly about a bunch of things about the reopening, uh, but also about one specific thing which is back in business, which is restaurants and not just restaurants for takeout restaurants where you can go and actually sit down and have a meal. And Hamilton is doing something somewhat unique, somewhat unique in this. Uh, King William street is being closed to traffic entirely on Friday. So restaurants can have expanded patios out onto the road. So more people can dine because people have to be spread out a bit. Uh, so they can try and recoup some of the losses they've faced over the last number of months. Um, and then Many other restaurants and many other streets are also apparently in discussion for this to happen. Uh, As I said a moment ago, when you were listening to Donna Skelly, she had glowing things to say about the program and about my next guest, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, who, um, Jason, this is now twice in a row I've had you on to praise you, which is causing me great concern now that we're losing our edge. And on top of that, you have not lost your edge. I listen regularly. You have not lost your edge. And to top it all off, that was the greatest tee-up tune in the history of talk radio that I've ever been party to. English beat, Mirror in the Bathroom. Love that song. So I, all things are looking rosy. I, I hope for the next 20 minutes, Scott. Well, so, somebody clearly has worked in radio before to be able to pull that reference out of, the, out of thin air. Oh, I love, well, I'm a child of the 80s. It was my coming of age. I, Scott, danced to that many times. And yes, I don't with... Dance. And with the flock of seagulls hairdo back then, I'm guessing. <laughs> uh, brush cut when I did the Scott, but I did have the <laughs> flock of seagulls when I was into the Duran Duran Scott. But uh, let's digress on to, yes, King William, and then now 30 applica- over 30 applications effective at the end of this day, and uh, about five to seven have happened since the provincial announcement yesterday. So I'm pretty excited because, you know, we talked about this motion about a month ago, and now to see... Uh, a lot of it come into play Friday. Not all of it. Some are taking a little bit more time. But uh, I think we are seeing some great take-up here in the city and all over the city, not just King William or Augusta or, or Hess but, uh, or those districts, but uh, in one-off spots as well. Do you think, uh, clearly the door has been open now for people to go back to restaurants starting on Friday, but do you think they're going to, or do you think the apprehension still exists and a lot of people are still overly cautious to go out and do that? Well, the restaurateurs that I've spoken to think they're going to. I think from talking to them that they are going to. One of the things we 
debated, not knowing, but we just assumed or anticipated that part of the announcement would be that you would be able to dine indoors. So we were at the time arguing, let's, you know, if that's the case and physical distancing is part of that indoor footprint, let's give them additional footprint outdoors, you know, to, to expand their capacity during this period. And now, as it turns out, the announcement comes with you can only serve at a restaurant on a patio. So it's uh, become crucial. And so I think a lot of modified applications trying to get as much space as, as possible are, are probably happening, or at least in some cases that's happening. And uh, that's something we did not anticipate. So as it turns out, this patio program that we, we sort of originated here in Hamilton, it's catching on, I know, throughout Ontario now, uh, it becomes even that much more important for an industry that clearly, Scott, and, you know, we've talked about it, has been decimated among many other industries. I mean, but we employ some 30,000 people in the restaurant game in this town, and the whole objective was to try to get as many people back to work, but also in as, as safe a way possible, uh, and in following all the guidelines, let people socialize because we're social creatures. You, the city just um, upped its fines, correct, this week to $500 for not socially distancing properly. Does that apply in restaurants? Is someone going to be going and making sure the tables are far enough apart and all that kind of thing? Are there bylaw officers going to be stopping in to make sure it's done right? I, I, I don't know if bylaw officers are going to be strictly uh, enforcing uh, patios in conjunction with all the other items that they need to enforce with our limited resources that we have in staffing. Uh, what I do know we've done traditionally is, you know, we don't just go heavy-handed first time round. We'll, we'll offer an issue warning. So I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, we wouldn't send the appropriate enforcement officers in around these, these expanded footprints, these outdoor patios, these makeshift patios uh, in early and if they do find that there's some physical distancing issues, they would certainly issue a warning before they would uh, enforce. That said, through the application process, we have that covered, so it wouldn't be too hard to carry that footprint with you as an enforcement officer and say, hey, you know what, you might have an extra table there, or you know, you've got five chairs, you should only have four. So, so th- those footprints, those blueprints, those plans are, are in place, and and. You know, restaurateurs, from what I can understand, and I've talked to Jason Cassis today with King William representing nine restaurants on that culinary district downtown, uh, all very ready, willing, and able to play by, you know, the strict uh, COVID-19 rules that are in place, the physical distancing, the regular cleanings, and uh, the appropriateness of who's dining where. You mentioned that there are something like 30 others that want to do it now. Are they going to get the go-ahead basically regardless, or is what's happening on King William Street going to be a test run to see if this can be done properly? I mean, if, if King no. William doesn't go well, does this put an end to the idea of the 30 others or no? No, King William isn't a test run. King William, we're, we, through the great work of the BIA, uh, who have uh, established wonderful relations with all sorts of divisions in the city, they were one of the first to finish their application. Uh, so they've been on this, and it's the BIA that's actually orchestrating the King William culinary scene there. And so they were able to, you know, get that patio done by Kerry Jarby, the executive director, you know, within minutes that those applications became available. The reality is, Scott, it wasn't until about four or five days ago that the actual applications were ready to go because we really didn't know, 
you know, what to cover until about three or four days ago, essentially. And so what we had was a whole lot of tire kicking prior to that. But, no, there's no one or two test districts or restaurants. It's uh, whoever applies and who's ever able to meet the criteria of the application, they're good to go. There are certain items that were, it was a vast motion. There was a lot of uh, therefores and whereases uh, when we moved it about a month ago. And part of it did speak to, you know, you're going to consult with a local counselor. You're going to have to adhere to uh, current zoning bylaws. So I know of a few, unfortunately at this point, who've been denied because they're adjacent to residential and we have a zoning bylaw in our, our city where you can't have an outdoor patio that is immediately adjacent or connected to a residential dwelling. And so there's been a few that have been shut out, but they're trying to get creative and looking elsewhere nearby, and, and hopefully that works for them as well. So there's different criteria that we look at, but no matter who you are or where you are, whether you're working with a number of restaurants in one area or you're an independent restaurant, maybe in a, a strip mall on Ward 8 or Ward 14, you're, you're eligible to apply, and I'm encouraging uh, tonight on your program people to continue to apply. Julia Davis, easy to remember, just julia.davis at hamilton.ca. If you're a restaurateur and you see uh, an opportunity in front of you here, uh, please uh, contact Julia. You can email or call the city. Ask for Julia Davis, and she'll set you up with the application process. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Back to uh, restaurants and closing streets and doing that kind of thing in Hamilton. Now, the idea has received that you and, and the people from King William and, and others have, have brought forward has received a lot of acclaim and a lot of praise for this. I did want to mention that there was a story in the Peterborough Examiner this week that they did something kind of similar. And it sounds like it was a complete disaster. I think the mayor called it a debacle. Um, they closed some streets. What they found was that the other business owners along the street now, and even some of the restaurants that they were trying to help, said people couldn't get there, they couldn't do pickup, they couldn't do takeout, and they were asking for it to be taken down. How, is there some sort of, um, here on King William to start with, is there some sort of unanimity that all of the restaurants on King William are buying into this and really want this to happen so you're not going to have the same kind of situation? Well, I'm getting the sense on King William specifically, they are buying in, all of them. That said, we did cover that in the motion as well. I don't know if it was covered in Peterborough, but we did say that in the districts where there's a number of restaurants clustered in one area, that you needed that 70% of businesses to buy in. The other thing is, uh, and I mentioned the no cost, the only cost would be internal. It would be the restaurant with the tables and the and the fencing and that sort of thing. None of that is fixed, so there's no building codes and onerous tasks to go through there but those those would be your costs and and so that footprint plan we talked about earlier would obviously um contemplate access for other businesses be them restaurants or not there there are no doubt scott there's going to be areas that will need to do hopefully just tweaks not uh, disband a, a, a patio and outdoor serving area altogether i hope but uh you know the the, that, that area was definitely covered, and we do really have some exceptional people. We have two full-time City of Hamilton staff who know what they're doing, who are working on this. One's, one's uh, pretty much an expert on all things parking-related, and the other is Julia, who's worked with BIAs for some years. She worked with the film industry. So we're covering that in the application process, and certainly we had you. The, the, the um, Therefore, be it resolved, one of them was that there had to be this buy-in. You're also 
of course, working with the ward counselor. There were a few counselors during the debate a month ago that did want that covered, and we, we actually amended the motion accordingly to make sure it was covered. The other thing about Peterborough, and I saw that today as well, I don't know where they put their patios, but they got an interesting uh, uh, downtown with the way cars park there as opposed to, you know, uh, parallel with the businesses that you kind of drive in and then back out. So I don't know if that might have been some of their issues. I'm not sure. I know in other places it's working great. Winnipeg, Calgary, there's places all over Canada and probably the world right now. I mean, Europe was doing it anyway, uh, even pre-COVID, uh, where they were utilizing a lot of footprint on their public accesses and public streetscapes. So it, we know it works, and, and you just have to devil's in the details. Every case is going to be different, and certainly it's been, uh, it's been a full-time job for two uh, staffers to date, that's for sure. Jason, if this works, if it's very successful, I and mean, let's say it works, but if it's very successful, is this something then you consider bringing forward as a permanent thing or a seasonally permanent thing? Because you know as well as I do, there are people in this city who are in the no cars on any street, it should be accessible by foot crowd. And there's those who say streets are only for cars crowd and never the twain shall meet. Is this something you could see becoming a longer lasting kind of scenario for some of these places? Well, some of these places, at least in Ward 2 that I can speak to, we've already been kind of looking at that. We have a public art installation happening at James and King William, as an example. And the whole point of the public art was to act as a sort of dual purpose. It was going to be a showpiece, a public art piece, but also sort of a wigwag that went down on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. So we could have on-street uh, pedestrian action only or serving, expanding patios that already exist there. Augusta is another example. There's been talk for years about having those opportunities in prime time and and the great weather to allow them to do a street closure. And I'm really glad that they're all working together to try to make something happen there, radius and out and about in the ship and all of those great places. And even George Street, uh, Scott, we pedestrianized George Street early last year. So that stretch from Queen to Hess, is actually a no-car access zone anyway, and we know that they're also working on uh, doing some serving in addition to the patios that they already have there. Again, each case is different, but will it be a test? In some respects, I think, in the culinary districts more than those one-off places, but even the one-off places, if it works and it isn't a disruption and it ends up being an attraction where other businesses ancillary to uh, the restaurant that are in that strip mall or in that on that block end up seeing increased foot traffic. They may wish to carry it on uh, in in uh, future uh, seasons or years. You know, and in the last two or three years, you've seen our on street program has been very successful, where people are actually occupying one or two metered spaces on the street and creating patios as well. So we've already sort of headed in that direction, and while these tables are so spaced out it's not going to be huge crowds even on these blocks that are closed uh you'll still get a real sense of how well it works for all of the people that are that are working and and uh running businesses on that street it would you know aside from the restaurants we are out of time sadly but it starts friday if you want to go eat somewhere other than your own kitchen or backyard you can do that on king william jason farr counselor for war two thanks for the time as always appreciate it okay scott thank you You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a story that was in 
uh, Variety magazine, which is one of the, it's a, it's a trade magazine. You know what Variety is, right? It's an entertainment publication that many of the people within that industry read rather religiously. And it came out the other day and it says that really the numbers of people whose habits when it comes to going to a theater, going to see a movie may have changed over the last few months is stunningly high. A new study, a new consumer study that Variety did itself found 70% of people now say they would rather watch a brand new first run movie at home rather than go to the theater and see the new superhero movie or whatever else you would rather just sit at home and watch it 70%. It's worse than that though. It's worse than that because 17% said they're not really sure. Only 13% of people said they are going to go for sure to the local theater to watch the movie they want to go see. Scott Henderson was uh, the head of the of Brock University's Department of Communications, Popular Culture and Film. That is his background. He is now the Dean at Trent University, and we love having him on when we're able to get him. He joins us now. Scott, thanks for doing this today. Oh, absolute pleasure, Scott. When I read this, uh, first of all, two things. I am very glad I don't own a movie theater right now. Uh, and the next thing is I start to wonder, is this the end of movie theaters as we know them? I certainly think it's you know, part of a longer decline. I mean, audiences peaked back in 2002, right? So we've had kind of 18 years of declining audiences, I think masked a bit by higher prices. So it looks like, you know, films are doing a little bit better than they were, but this is really going to, I think, push things quicker down that slope. Maybe not as severe as that polling suggests. Well, there is always the possibility that, you know, people are just still very cautious. And if you ask them again in a month or two when they've been out of the house, that may change. I mean, we don't know if it's a COVID blip or if it's a full-time thing. We won't know that for months. That's exactly what I think. But I also think it does kind of capture a, a changing way in which we're consuming film, right? We're, we're using more streaming services. And as these become owned by some of the same companies making the films, right, such as Disney, what incentives do they have to give a cut to a theater chain when they can get it right onto their service and make the money directly? I, I, I'm When you mentioned 2002 that this decline started, I can absolutely understand the decline in the last number of years, certainly in the last number of months, but in the last number of years as we've had big screen TVs and surround sound. And you mentioned streaming services that are now all over the place. I mean, there at one time Netflix sort of stood alone. Now there's, I don't know how many of them. What, so that's very more, much more recent. What was it in 2002 that got this thing started to get people not going to theaters? I mean, I think that was the, the start of the shift towards kind of home theater. It was pre-streaming, but you know, DVDs had taken off, right? The quality was much better than, you know, the old days of VHS. And, you know, the number of tapes I had jammed in machines or <laughs> would get that sort of snow if you played them more than once or you'd rent them and they'd be dirty and just not quite work right. So I think DVDs and, and digital quality really, you know, started to tip the balance for a lot of people, especially as the price dropped on those kinds of things, right? So suddenly a DVD player was not a huge family expense while going to a movie increasingly became one. 
Yeah, and when you can pay, I don't know what the average person pays now. I can't even, I don't even know what my bill is. Netflix is what, like 11 or 14 bucks or something a month now? It's just, see, they're genius that way. They don't even tell you how much. It just comes out every month and you don't even notice it. So I don't even know. But let's say, let's say it's $20 a month for Netflix. That's still, Scott, what, if you, and if you would go on a date to the movies, that's still half the price for one movie and you get a whole month that way. And I think there's an awful lot of people, especially now, that are looking at their finances because they may be out of work or whatever saying, wait a second, I get a month compared to one night. I'm taking the month. Yeah. And people are doing exactly that math, right? They're, they're looking, thinking, well, what, what would they pay for a first run film? It was interesting that variety, you know, poll asked people what they paid. And, you know, it seemed to be $10 was kind of by far the biggest one, but of course that's 10 bucks, not per person. That's 10 bucks for whoever's watching with you on TV. So you can get the whole family in, eat your own snacks, and, and very quickly the savings are adding up. Yeah, and you've got a big screen. You've got, as you say, your own snacks that are cheaper. You've got a clean bathroom. You can hit pause. You don't have to miss part of the movie if you have to go for a pee. I mean, like there's a lot of things that I I get the sense. There's a lot of things that people by force, because they haven't been able to go out, have suddenly realized, you know, this isn't that bad. I can rent a movie online, and this is almost as almost as good i guess as going to the movie theater my question is now so you're the person you scott henderson are the person who owns a movie theater how do you what is it that you can offer that will lure the people back what do you tell people is the thing that going to the movies is so much better that this is why you have to come back through our doors yeah i think in the last few years they've already been facing this and it's been you know in a way size right it's screen size it's the size of the sound, right? It's the, the increasing plushness of the seats and selling a kind of premium event aspect. And, and I'll say, I've been you know, using some of lockdown. I've been rewatching the entire Marvel universe from beginning to end and great films. And I've got a decent sized TV and I can crank the sound up and annoy the family. It's not <laughs> the same as sitting in a seat in the theater and, and feeling that shake. And, and you notice the difference right because the sound effects get loud then you're kind of straining to hear the talking because you don't have the dolby surround or the kind of you know to the level that theaters do and that's what they've been selling for a while i think that's why those have still been the biggest grossing films recently well things like dramas and smaller stories work well on a big screen tv and you've got more time to tell the story and I got to believe it. And the, the numbers in this poll, because it was not just about movies. They talked about a bunch of other things. This is not going to be just a Hollywood problem. I mean, I mean people are saying, you know, they ask people about going to Broadway plays. And we'll just say plays in general. Numbers way down. Uh, concerts way down. Sports events way down. This seems like it's an issue for anything that requires you to be pried off your couch and pay more money. Yeah. And it's, I mean, to be honest, the people I really feel for are those in the music industry. Right, the bands that are out there, because while people will watch a YouTube or a live stream on Facebook or somewhere, going to a concert is very different from, you know, a film where, where you can watch the film at home. You, you can't get the Rolling Stones into your basement to play for you, right? And watching it on a screen is okay, but it's not nearly the same. You're not, you're not enjoying the story the way you might kind of with a film. Mm. So that's an industry, I think, that's really going to hurt out of this. So one thing we know Hollywood does very, very well is uh, tell stories. That's what they've built their whole history on. How does Hollywood, 
or do they can they spin this to their advantage somehow and turn okay let's let's even acknowledge that people want to stay at home how does hollywood then pitch this to their advantage well i think they're starting right some of the releases that were scheduled are now showing up on streaming services or at least on download services so so on apple or on amazon or somewhere you can rent the film and and watch it instead of having a theatrical release and i'll be intrigued when oscar time rolls around because they've been very reluctant to honor films that were on streaming services or primarily streaming they still wanted to kind of hang on to the theatrical release as you know the pinnacle of filmmaking and you know i think the realities of the market are that streaming is going to take the lead and perhaps when we get to Oscar time, they will start to have a rethink. And it will be the screaming films that come to the fore. And the industry is going to be kind of pushed to reinvent itself. Yeah, I was trying to think if there was any downside, any real downside to the to the studios, not the theaters. The theaters, obviously, it's a downside to them. And it took me a while, but I, I finally realized what maybe the downside is. And again, it may be more of a theater issue, but part of their box office numbers are you pay X number of dollars and every single person who is watching that movie has to pay. If you can download this at home, you could have 15 people watching and it's only one fee. So it becomes, you could lose out on an awful lot of people's ticket price and, and, and revenue towards the box office. Yeah. But then you're saving on marketing. And I, I would honestly say in these days that the theatrical release for a company like Disney is a form of marketing, right? You get that opening weekend hype and everyone says, gee, I got to see that new Avengers film. Didn't want to go out to the line. I'll sign up for Disney Plus and I'll, I'll watch it on there when it comes out, right? So they, they're building in their audience. So now suddenly they're saving on, you know, working with theaters and somebody else getting a cut and then having to distribute this and having to market and advertise in the same way that they have. So, you know, it is the theater owners who I think will hurt the most out of this. I think, you know, the, the big companies, the conglomerates and, you know, the, the way in which they've kind of combined anyway, right, to, to form these large conglomerates, they'll survive. They'll find new forms of revenue and ways of saving from this distribution system. It's the theaters that are going to hurt. And, you know, that's big real estate, right? Those it, are yes. anchor, anchors for a lot of the, the kind of big box malls that we have now. They've got a you know, a Cineplex in the parking lot, and that draws in a lot of people who then go to the restaurant beforehand or do a little shopping before or after the film, and that kind of economic driver is going to be lost. I'm quite frankly surprised that we haven't yet seen, and maybe we have, maybe I've just missed it. You could probably tell me if I've missed something here, but that we haven't seen the streaming services offer different, like significantly different levels. I know that like Netflix, you can order a different level by how many sets you can watch at the same time. But I'm talking about something where you would say, if you pay instead of $20 a month for Netflix, you pay $40 a month and you have access a week early to all the new run movies that we're going to bring in here. And you get the people who just have no ability to be patient and they'll say, yeah, you know what, for an extra 20 bucks a month, sure, I'll watch it a week early. And I bet you there are people who would pay for that. You're giving them ideas. <laughs> I, I will. That, you know, and we're starting to see some tiering in, in there, right? I mean, Amazon has a form of tiered services now. So you can get Amazon Prime and get your free delivery and you can watch the kind of basic stuff. Then you can, now they've added on all these channels and premium movies and hmm. more first run stuff. And I, I can, as you suggest, see that model 
really picking up. I mean, it exists now to some extent. I can go onto Apple and I can download the newest film and, you know, pay seven ninety nine for a rental, keep it for 24 hours, and then it disappears before it gets onto Netflix or anywhere else. But, you know, building that into one of those services is a great revenue stream. Are they going to have to, so, I mean, I, I would assume then if this is really the nightmare for theaters that it looks like it could be, and again, we don't know if this is just a blip or if this, you know, is significant, are we going to have to see ticket prices go down? I mean, what are the other things other than, I mean, you mentioned the experience of seeing a, an Avengers movie on the big screen. Okay. I mean, that that's true, but are we going to have to see for a lot of other movies, prices drop in a desperate attempt to try and lure them back? That, that has to be the next step, right? Because up to now, what it's been is add-ons. So we kind of went from your basic sticky seat into, no, no, we're going to give you a recliner, right? And, you know, we'll bring you some, you know, seat service for some of your food if you want to order it on an app. Or, you know, so it was always kind of add-ons to make the ticket price justifiable. But I think we're getting to the point, as you suggest, it's going to have to slide the other way. They're going to have to find ways of getting people in who are going to, have done the math in the past few months and realize how much they've been watching for eleven ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine a month and realizing why am I going to pay that per person for one film? And especially when and you, you know you mentioned I was shocked when I saw this in this story. Uh, you mentioned about Avengers and and I get it like a superhero movie or those kind of big action movies, the big screen with the explosions and everything that helps. But when they asked people what kind of movies are you most interested in seeing? A comedy was the number one at 43% of people said, I want to go see, I would go to a theater to see a comedy. I was surprised by that. Second drama at 35 action movies were only third at 33%. And again, if, if, if the big screen is not the sales pitch or not the thing, uh, I can't see a way that you don't have to put specials on or something to try and get people to come back in. Cause again, I can watch people crying and giving soliloquies in a English drama on my big screen TV as easily as I can in a theater. Yeah. And that, and that works. You don't need the giant screen for it. I'm, I was surprised at the comedy thing too. And I think that may be a bit of, you know, people want to break from all the kind of gloomy news yes. we've been having the yes. past few months. And the f first box you're going to take is, oh, yes, right. I'd go see a comedy and laugh with everybody. And weirdly, comedy has been one of the genres that's been struggling at the box office for a long time now. Because there haven't been many good ones. But I'm telling you, if you it, right now, if you could produce, if you could put out in the next couple of weeks, if you have one in the vault somewhere a fantastic comedy it, you would you would kill with this one because you're right everyone's dying for something great to laugh at yeah just come out and just say that was a good two hours i had a lot of fun because again you know the, the superhero films but the last couple of avengers have not exactly been uplifting <laughs> they, you know kind of gloomy conclusions to them so uh, Scott, just before we let you go, one last thing that really uh, strikes me as kind of interesting, and we've seen it here in Hamilton, and I know it's been elsewhere, there has been a resurgence, and I don't even know if that's the right word, there have been the reopening or the reattention, new attention on drive-in movies again, and drive-in theaters, and of course it makes sense because you can be in your car and you can be socially distant and all the rest. Are the drive-in movies... Are the theaters there? Is this simply a function of COVID and they will go away again as soon as this is done? Or do we honestly think that these are now going to be reintroduced to people and it's going to catch on and be a big new thing? 
I think to some extent there will be a, a bit of a boom. I don't think it'll be huge, but you know the drive-ins that are left, you go to them on a summer weekend and they're packed. People still really like that as a, a relatively cheap night out if you're paying by the carload. And the fact that you know they've been utilizing kind of drive-ins both for films, but they've been there've been drive-in concerts now. There've been other activities, so I I can see a, an uptick in this for sure. Not not massive, but there'll be a mini boom, I would think. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time to do this today. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks very much. Scott Henderson, formerly the head of Brock's Communications, Popular Culture and Film Department, now the dean at Trent University. Uh, Years ago, by the way, with drive-in movies. Some of you may have heard this phrase too. Years ago, I remember someone's mother, it was not my mother, but it was someone's mother who referred to the drive-in movie theater as the passion pit. And I always thought that worked out as a great description, the passion pit. Haven't been in a while. Maybe, you know, if that's the advert, maybe that's how they should advertise them to stick around. There's a movie and passion. I don't know that too many parents are going to want their kids to go in that case, but you know, adults. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.